0: The Road to Moscow by Robert Swipe, Part 4 1972 Saturday 22nd of April 1972, Amateur Cup Final, Enfield 0, Hendon 2 The first time I went to Wembley was for the 1971-72 Amateur Cup Final, played that year between Enfield and Hendon. It's the day before St George's Day, so quite appropriate that my father and I should accompany yet another George, this one our neighbour, Mr Rickson. My memory can't suppress the idea that the 23rd may also have been his birthday, but the writer in me sees that would be too neat. It's more than enough for him to share my grandfather's name and that of England's patron saint. Regardless, it's five days after my birthday, making me a newly turned seven years old on my first trip to that historic ground. George, Frank Cannon, works for Hawker Sidley, and must be quite high up there, because he's got us complimentary tickets. Good ones, too. We're right next to the Royal Box, close to those famous steps, and their historic balcony. The monarch and her court are protected from the swearing and the roaring of the crowd by a cube of glinting glass. I don't believe that was there for the World Cup final of 1966, so it must have been a fairly new innovation on the day in question. There would only be two more amateur cup finals after this, as the Football Association did away with the distinction between professional and amateur clubs in 1974. Enfield, today's losing finalists, had played in one of the best known amateur cup games in the competition's history. In the semi-final, they were drawn against Highgate United. Not my Highgate. Highgate, unfortunately. There's also one in Birmingham. The game was played out in the horrendous thunderstorm that eventually saw the game cooled off before half an hour had been played, and which was severe enough to see several players struck down by lightning, one of whom, Tony Alden, died tragically. The tie was replayed at Villa Park, where Enfield stuffed their still shell-shocked opponents 6-0. The final against Skelmersdale attracted an astonishing 75,000 crowd to Wembley. Enfield won that one 3-0. End and win today, but I can't tell you anything about the game. Oh, I was spellbound, all right. I was taking it all in. It's just that what has stuck with me is not the game so much as the pitch. It's hard to convey just how dazzling the pitch at the old Wembley was to young eyes. It had, it had evidently been sown more from gold than grass. And that was the magic of the day, not the game. Not the glitzy proximity to the great and the good. Not the swanky well, for 1972, ease with which we strolled a step or two to the comforts of the lounge and bar. Just as a theatre lover's lifelong passion can be sparked not by the play, but by the splendour of the proscenium, so I fell entranced with this pulsating stage of grass. George would have driven us back in his pride and joy, a sumptuous sonic blue saloon that he seemed perpetually to be buffing and primping, and that would have been that. Over the years, I'd go back several times to see the big touring bands, Stones, Bruce Springsteen, U2, but the next game I'd go to see there would be another special one. The following weekend, England host West Germany in the first leg of the 1972 European Championship quarterfinal. George and his wife, Renee have a colour television, so Dad and I are invited to watch the game there. Although the timings of the goals suggest a tighter game, it was 1-1 with 13 minutes to play, I seem to recall that Germany took England apart. This extract from Brian McIlvenny's match report in The Observer appears to confirm my hazily recollected childhood despair. No Englishman can ever again warm himself with the old assumption that on the football field, if nowhere else, the Germans are an inferior race. There, in the light of a lurid lava lamp, with only a glass of pop and a poof for comfort, I watched as, on a Wembley pitch left as lush as an Irish meadow by the rain, England were undone. This was to be my first immediate experience of the disappointments of England. England always lets you down. And this was only 1972. We hadn't even had the OPEC crisis yet. We hadn't even had Poland What a bloody week that must have been. The following Saturday, 6th May 1972, I watched the centenary FA Cup final. Arsenal versus Leeds United. I used to have the programme. Hoped I'd come across it when we cleared out the family home, but it must be long gone. I can't remember where, where it had come from. George, most likely. I used to love scanning through the long list of previous finals, marvelling at the quaint old names. Royal Engineers. The Wanderers. Old Etonians, Clapham Rovers, Old Carthusians, Blackburn Olympic, Queens Park, and then from 1886 onward, the finalists take on a more familiar look. 1886 Blackburn Rovers two West Bromwich Albion nil. 1887 Aston Villa two West Bromwich Albion nil. 1888 West Bromwich Albion two, Preston North End one. 1889, Preston North End 3, Wolverhampton Wanderers nil, 1890, Blackburn Rovers 6, Sheffield Wednesday 1. 1891, Blackburn Rovers 3, Notts County 1. 1892, West Bromwich Albion 3, Aston Villa nil. Those all took place at Kennington Oval. The three finals immediately before the first at Wembley in 1923 took place at Stamford Bridge. I wonder if Roman Abramovich knows that or any of the men who tore down the towers that watched over all the games that were to come. Arsenal lose to Cardiff, beat Huddersfield Town, lose to Newcastle and beat Sheffield United. Portsmouth, Hammer, Wolverhampton, Wanderers 4-1 in 1939, before six repeated phrases are left to stand for all the horror of World War II. 1940, no competition held. 1941, no competition held. 1942, no competition held, and so on. Derby County finally prized the cup from Pompey's wartime grip, beating Charlton Athletic 4-1 after extra time. Always a war, always a game, someone recording the particulars. And now another game, played out just like the 90 finals played before. Someone loses, someone wins. Leeds win, we lose, 1-0. Alan sniffer-Clark scores the goal. So, another loss, and more to come. So much lost within a week. You want to know about the special one, I suppose? No, not Mourinho. Not even the game, or the result, or the occasion. Just a simple moment. That sort of special one. Wednesday the 30th of September, 1998, at Wembley. Arsenal play Panathinaikos in the Champions League. It's just before 7.45pm and the game's about to start. We take our seats, low and close to the pitch in one of the corners and look out at the pool of floodlit green. I catch my father's face, cheeks involuntarily blown out as if some small explosion of pleasure has gone off inside his mouth. I catch him like that and hold him there because I know, even then, that one day I'll have need of this. This moment when a father became a son, a child the father of the man. Always war, always hunger, always fear, but always love as well. It keeps me warm still, the vision of that face. As it does then in the chilly autumn, chilly autumn air that freezes two men into boys. 1973 Wednesday, the seventeenth of October, nineteen seventy-three. England one, Poland one. The wonders of the age of Google. I'm trying to research whatever happened to the Likely Lads, in the hope of validating the claims my memory is making that the famous "No Hiding Place" episode was shown as part of the build-up to this game. It turns out to have been originally broadcast on Tuesday, twentieth of February, nineteen seventy-three. So. Probably my recollection is at fault, although it's true that the programme may have been repeated in an attempt to steady the nation's nerves. More to the point, the game was shown on ITV. They'd paid 50000 for the rights, I looked it up. So unless some sense of impending national humiliation had brought about an unprecedented degree of bipartisan cooperation between the rival broadcasters, I'll just have to assume that my memory is wrong. The matter still unresolved. I'm intrigued by the title of one of the links at the bottom of the screen, so I click on it. It turns out that When Things Were Rotten is merely the next title in the BBC's database of alphabetically arranged comedy hall of fame. It was a TV comedy. Mel Brooks's first stab at a Sherwood Forest spoof, by all accounts. Unfortunately, it didn't exhaust the subject matter sufficiently so as to have obviated the need for Robin Hood Men in Tights, but it would be curmudgeonly in the extreme not to accept that it's still a rather brilliant title. I'm reminded by it of the graffiti that cropped up recently on Andrew Marr's History of Modern Britain. Then was rotten days, scrawled across a wall. Whether by balaclavered Provo or patch-pocketed football hooligan, it didn't seem to matter much. It just summed up the time, all those rotten, rotten days I'd assumed that there was some folkloric explanation for the phrase. And there is, I suppose, if you count modern popular culture as the folklore of tomorrow. To the best of my knowledge, it's a saying that belongs to the fictional Nottingham of Saturday night and Sunday morning and the Salford of the Queen is dead, rather than being a commonly used everyday one. Arthur Seaton's Aunt Ada, played by Hilda Baker, spits it out, and her very words are etched into the run-off groove of the Smith's 1986 LP. So that is, I'm sure, a relatively recent daubing, by a Smith's fan of a line from a screenplay and a song, and not some spontaneously sprayed agitprop or anti-British curse. But it still rings true, they were, and they weren't, them days, rotten that is, a Monday was perhaps the most rotten of them all, Wednesday, 13th of October 1973. The OPEC crisis and England's one-all draw with Poland landed on us with all the force of some karmic, cultural and political double whammy. If the oil embargo that would kill off what was left of the 1960s came as an unforeseen uppercut that rocked us on our heels, then the stiff Polish resistance to the mass ranks of Al- Sir Ralph Ramsay's strikers was the steadily aimed left hook that brutally finished us off. Sniffer Clark, who'd broken my heart the year before at Wembley, scored the penalty that gave us hope. But the Poles held firm. No Banks, no more, no Styles, no Charlton. England had lost its spine. You need a strong spine. In football that means an experienced or exceptionally capable player at each of the key positions moving up the vertebrae of the side, goalkeeper, centre-half, central midfield, and centre-forward. Books need a good spine too, and not just the sort that holds the glue that keeps the things together physically. I mean in the traditional beginning, middle, and ending kind of way. And so increasingly does the memory. Fixture lists and discographies have become my spine. So when, for instance, I think of 1973, the obvious point of reference for me is October 17th of that year, because I know that England drew with Poland that day, and couldn't score for trying that one solitary extra goal that would have taken them to the World Cup Finals. Just as, when I think of 1986, I go back to that Thursday afternoon when I walked home from Richmond, clutching a precious green square of cardboard, inside it a treasured disc of vinyl, and the legend then was Rotten Days. Or three days later, on that Sunday, the 22nd, when I watch two Maradona goals, one foul, one the fairest of them all, once again leave England sickened, another rotten day. Without those dates I'm lost. Other times close by to them encroach and blur the image of the precise time that I want to see, the mind's double exposures can confuse so that Netzer and Damaski, Lato and Muller all combine playing the same game on the same pitch, in the same strip, red or green, at roughly the same time. It all blows into one otherwise. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why telling stories is telling lies. We simply can't keep the truth contained, isolate one moment from the tales the other times are telling. But that said, certain things do happen on certain days and are documented thus these can help us when we grope our way, near blind, uncertainly through history, through time. Maradona's power and grace destroying England won't happen on any other day that June, or in any other year. Some records do prove true, some facts can't be made to lie. We may argue as to the why, but at least not as to when and where things happened or did not. Fixture lists, discographies, charts and league tables. I really would be lost without them. June becomes September. 1980, 83, them was rotten days when things were rotten, in my memory at least they were, in my mind watching Step 2 and Son felt more like watching something verite than situations filmed inside a studio, there still were a few totters about even after that show's run came to an end. I'd hear one from my bedroom, calling out that eerie, bygone cry, the out-of-kilter clip-clop of his bedraggled Hercules. And then there was next door, we called it Steptoe's Yard, Mr Martin, Billy Wilder, and his millenarian stockpiling of every every last decaying timber, every pot and glass or paint can he could find, racked up in the gaps between the rows of peas and beans. It was more allotment or wrecking yard than garden. He too worked at Hawker's, but on the other side from George. Churchill had put him under surveillance during World War Two. a union activist in a sector vital to the military, a stirrer, a troublemaker, a fifth columnist at the heart of the war effort, a whited sepulcher in our midst. Red Roly Martin, they called him. But I found this out too late. I'd mistaken his sullenness, for sourness, his dejection for disdain, now I see that he wasn't just some hard-bitten old bastard, perhaps just another beaten man and that October day would sow the seeds of my own rebellion I would store up this defeat and one day join his disaffected ranks turn my back on my own country renounce the sovereign sovereignty of my queen, but that was later I still had faith in England for now but how I wish I'd had the chance to ask him more to learn some more about defeat. And this is where it all gets hazy, the phases of one's life begin to blur. In my mind I'd lumped in England's Wembley despair with broader national events. True, the OPEC crisis began the day of, or perhaps the day before, the game, but I remember power cuts being quite a regular thing. The three-day week was later, early 1974. The normal working week was not restored until 8th of March the following year. At least according to Google, with its reassuring handrail of calendars and facts. But now, with time, it all feels of a piece. In truth, those nights that felt like wartime, with their cricket from down under on the wireless, the candles shedding their unruly light, a phantasmagoric riot running nimbly around the walls. They could have happened any time. Or perhaps it's just an appealing mood, the politely grim nostalgia of one who doesn't know they're born. Something I've clung on to to make that time my own. But everything did feel different then. Was it me or was it time? Then was Rotten Days when things were rotten. And yet they weren't. We had the Big England Games live, could watch at home on TV, no need for pubs with Sky, two highlight shows each weekend, the Big Match as well as Match of the Day, Brian Clough, Malcolm Allison, pundits who'd actually row. The whole place felt more feisty, more honest in a way. The likely lads themselves appeared to be less a sitcom than a dialectic being played out on your TV screen. Bob, upwardly mobile, getting on. The other, Terry, mired in the past. Pig happy there as well. A prime time Marquis e. Smith, only well before the fall. That show seems to catch the moment, the gyres in mid-shift. The transition of England from forward-thrusting industrial dynamo to backward-looking wretch is captured nowhere more eloquently than in the lyrics of Mike Hargany and Lafrenet's theme song. Tomorrow's almost over. Today went by so fast. And the only thing to look forward to. The past. It depends what you want, I guess. There was less then, but wasn't what we did have not a little better? I can't recall too many television characters as popular and enduring as the Steptoes and the Likely Lads. Few since have seemed as real as them, have seemed so on the money or summed things up so well. And how prescient is No Hiding Place. It must have been filmed a good year or so before the England v Poland game, but it's as if they had already read the runes. England played just such a tough away game in Chortsov, Poland on sixth of June that same year, nineteen seventy three. Bobby Moore, the golden haired emblem of English insuperability, had a stinker and was at fault for both their goals. I watched it through the snowstorm of the primitive satellites link. There was no heavy pitch, no deluge, although the players may well have trudged off to drown their sorrows in bottles of communist state-owned brown ale. But if you'd tried, like Bob and Terry, to evade the score and watch the highlights, you'd have felt precisely the same sense of anxiety as, as to how the game would end. Just as some still trot out Terry's reflex bigotries as their old certainties recede. Then, in real England, watching as our players failed out there in the real Soviet bloc, we could have done with the apocalyptic downpour that eventually postponed that fictitious England game, postponing the probable defeat, putting it off until October, when the whole damn thing would cave in on our heads for real. It's a canny nerve to hit, is football, if you wish to sum up national decline. England always lets you down. As we found out that night, as I'm sure it will again. 1974 Sunday, July 7th, 1974 World Cup Final, Holland 1, West Germany 2 It's Sunday, June 23rd and Poland are playing Italy in the 1974 World Cup or it might be the Saturday before that when they beat Argentina 3-2 Or maybe it's the day before the final itself, when they played and beat Brazil. 1-0. Lato scores to clinch third place for the England conquering Poles. But I'm pretty sure that Sharmac got a goal on the day I'm thinking of, and it was played in the afternoon, which would make it Italy. You see, on the day I'm trying to recall, there was quite a well-known actor at the window behind me, giving me the two-fingered salute and burping the word bollocks whilst I tried to watch the game. And you don't tend to forget stuff like that, do you? Even if the World Cup games played long ago begin to bleed into one, you don't forget Rufus Sewell burping bollocks, two grubby fingers raised, then mouthing fuck off while you try to watch the game, especially when the team who took your place at the World Cup are playing. He was only six at the time, of course, and taking a break from playing kiss chase with my sister. Not yet famous, no starring roles beyond his turn as Stiltskin at Trafalgar Infant School. Maybe that was a little later, the following year perhaps? But there is no doubting that he was already a prodigious talent. I couldn't even burp to order, let alone form a coarse vocabulary in that beguiling foreign tongue. Yet here he was, already swearing in it fluently. In fact, the infant's production of Rumpelstiltskin would enjoy such a dazzlingly brilliant run, be so acclaimed that they'd eventually transfer it to the main school with its larger assembly hall for a special one-off performance. So we juniors all got to enjoy Rufus stomping around, shouting a lot and generally stealing the show in the title role, being excellent as that funny little goblin child man in a performance all of our own and absolutely free. I've not seen Rufus for a while now, I think he's had some tough times, the usual life stuff, as well as some wonderful successes, most recently in Tom Stoppard's play set in the Prague of 1968, Rock and Roll. I didn't get to see it, should be more assertive about using contacts going through the door when it's being held open for you I suppose, but it's never never felt quite right. I've heard that he was very good and still loses power and charisma on the stage. I'd be lying if I said I didn't envy him a little, His having met some of my own personal heroes. Bowie, Lieber and Stoller, Peter Cook and Jack Lemmon are the ones that spring most readily to mind. But I don't envy him his success, because that's precisely what it is. His. I still feel a gentle glow of pride every now and then. That he he was one of us and now holds his own with all of them. I guess the fact is, to invite total ridicule by pursuing a football analogy, that he's been West Germany to my Holland. For all the fine approach play, all the clever clever stuff I might have come up with that should have blown the opposition apart, if only I'd been a slightly better finisher, he's the one who's done the business on the pitch, won the trophies, has his medals, and all I've done's fuck all. Bob Dylan sang, There's no success like failure, and failure's no success at all. And if that's the case, I suppose the Dutch and I can't really claim any kind of moral high ground, as if not winning were some badge of honour to show we were too worthy for the game. What's an actor without an audience? What's the point of writing if you're not prepared to be read? And in Holland's case, why turn up to a final to prove a point instead of to win? The records will bear out the facts of life. Sewell won, Swipe nil, Holland won, West Germany two. And one day, that is all that history will know. And then that too will be forgotten, as the universe yawns, and the savage winds torment the dust. But then, life as it is lived isn't about statistics, is it? I know I've been relying on them to fill the void of my memory, but they're only a loose guide to what really happened. Just as two figures separated by a dash are all that remain of all the blood-pumping endeavours of the 22 who played, so the write-ups and awards cannot reproduce the play. In much the same way, the words lose the story, and the story cannot hold the life. In his book, Football Against the Enemy, Simon Cooper charts the footballing enmity between Holland and Germany, as dating back to their meeting in the semi-final in the European Championship on 21st June 1988. Holland won that game, Marco van Basten scoring a late goal that sent nine million Dutchmen onto the streets of Holland in a wild frenzy of celebration. As Cooper describes the scene, in the Leidersplein square, Amsterdammers threw bicycles, their own, into the air and shouted, Hooray! We've got our bikes back! The Germans, in the biggest bicycle theft in history, had confiscated all Dutch bicycles during the occupation. But there would be no bicycle-throwing in 1974. In fact, I'm surprised that Cooper is so sanguine about the earlier game. It caused a rumpus back in Holland almost as traumatic as the war. To read the quotes of the astonished onlookers in David Winner's Brilliant Orange, you'd think they were talking about different games, those cycle-wielding Dutchmen avenging not the war but a later footballing defeat. ''There is still deep, unresolved trauma about 1974. It's a very living pain, like an unpunished crime,'' says Anna Enquist. And she should know how deep that trauma goes. She's a psychoanalyst. ''The defeat of 1974 is the biggest trauma that has happened to Holland in the 20th, 20th century, apart from the floods of 1953 and World War II,'' concurs playwright Johann Timmers. We, we English think we have an unsophisticated, occasionally Neanderthal view towards the descendants of the Third Reich, but even we don't feel quite like this, do we? We have to admit that one of our weak points is that we always have to start talking about the war and revenge when we play against the Germans, no matter what sport it is. Sure, we love to beat them, but is there anything off the pitch to avenge? There is for the Dutch, or so Keys Jansmer, a sports presenter on Dutch channel Canal Plus, says. He was nine when he went with his father to see Holland play the then world champions, West Germany, in Dusseldorf in 1956. When we won 2-1, I saw my father jumping and crying because we'd beaten the world champions. There must have been between six and eight thousand Dutchmen there and they invaded the pitch and carried their players on their shoulders. In the train going back, everybody was celebrating wildly. I'd never seen my father like that. He'd gone mad, singing, dancing. Later I realised it was because of the war, because of the strong feeling about the Germans. It was a very strong feeling for all the people there that we had some kind of revenge for everything they had done to us. And what better revenge than to completely humiliate your opponent on their own turf in a World Cup final? That's precisely what the Dutch set out to do. Winner describes it so beautifully, I can see it happening before me again. Holland kicked off and immediately began an extraordinary passage of play, insolently moving the ball backwards, forwards, and sideways, with the Germans unable to make a single effective challenge. Van Hannigan to Cruyff, Van Hannigan to Naiskins, to Kroll, Reisbergen to Hahn, to Serbia, Hahn to Reisbergen to Hahn. By now, the incensed German crowd is whistling their fury. Cruyff to Reisbergen to Kroll, Naiskins to Reisbergen to Cruyff. Cruyff finally darts forward and is tripped by English referee Jack Taylor, James Garner, points to the spot. How could he not? Naiskin steps up to take the penalty and finally, two minutes into the World Cup final, the hosts at last get to touch the ball, Sepp Meyer having picked it out from the back of the net. That should have been that, but the Dutch were so intent on rubbing it into the Germans just how much better they were than them that they forgot to win the game. Paul Breitner, Anthony Scherr in the History Man, scores from the penalty spot, and then Gert Müller, der Bomber, scores a second for the Germans. The Dutch attack, but the game is lost when it never seemed that they could lose. And there it was, an early object lesson in how not to win a game. But there is another universe out there, somewhere deep in some collective mindset, where the team in orange, not white, went on to win that game... In that parallel realm, you don't get points for scoring. It's how you played that counts. "'I want to win it better,' says the fictional Brian Clough in the Damned United. He wants Leeds United to win the league playing football, not fouling and cheating as he feels they did under his predecessor, Don Revy. He lasts 44 days at the club. "'How shall we live, Brian?' is a question oft asked of him throughout the novel by an unspecified voice in the crowd. And we could ask the same of ourselves. How shall we live, Brian? Do we want to be cynical or cling to an ideal? To be individuals or a community? The game plays out these dramas for us as we wrestle with them in life. I saw Van Basten and Johan Cruyff at the Emirates in the first ever ever match played there. Cruyff was in his 50s and Van Basten hadn't played competitively for well over a decade. There were some fabulous players on display that day. They turned out for Dennis Bergkamp's testimonial. Cruyff, Van Basten, Davids, Vieira, just a few who spring to mind. It was a very emotional day. Dennis Bergkamp's father, Vim, who'd recently been battling with cancer, kicked the game off by passing the ball to his son, who duly passed it on to his in a pretty triangle the miraculous cycle of life played out in that virginal centre circle. Then, at half-time, the names of the returning Arsenal heroes were announced by Bob Wilson. Seaman, Keown, Bold, Dixon, Winterburn, Vieira, Wright, Carnu. It was rousing stuff for the Arsenal faithful, but the guy sat next to me and I both turned to one another in surprise and joy when we heard the name of Cruyff. He was tubby, could hardly breathe, probably all those fags, he used to be an 80-a-day merchant. And several passes went astray, but you could still feel the class. The suspicion that there was magic coming whenever the ball touched his boot. There was still that whiff of genius, and he carried himself as if he still was what he had been, the man who lent the kicking game the grace of a ballet. Van Basten and Bergkamp ran him close for grace, poise and skill, but Cruyff was always out on his own for me. It wasn't just the football. Here was a man, you felt. Imagine any player nowadays tearing off an Adidas stripe, running round with two-lined arms when your teammates all have three. Winners write about the brilliant orange. The kit was dazzlingly cool. And that huge black silhouette of lion placed exactly above the heart. All that and the talent too. The turns, the jinx, the power and the pace. And the goals. The one that sticks in my mind is the goal he scored against Brazil. It was, in effect, a semi-final, and the Brazil side that year was atypically hard, as a sign of how the game was played then. One defender rugby tackles Cruyff and gets away with staying on the pitch. For this bruising physical encounter the Dutch were in white, the Brazilians wore blue as if to spare their traditional colours the shame of such an uncharacteristic display. The Dutch prove too strong, too athletic, have too much skill. Nayskins clips the ball over the keeper in a sublime arc just after the break. And 15 minutes later, Johan bullets through the air to karate kick the ball home off a deep cross from the left. The Dutch players huddle, bubbles like champagne, bobbing and bouncing, fizzing with relief. "'You've been here two and a half years, Dennis,' I said, "'half in sarcasm, half in motivation.' Isn't it about time you won something? It would be a shame not to with your ability. Only a professional with the dedication and honours of Tony Adams could get away with saying something like that to Dennis Bergkamp. As in football, so in life. Is it what you win or how? This isn't meant to be an answer, but if you went round any playground at the time they both played, I'm sure only a handful might have swapped you all those Adams medals for a touch of what the Iceman had. Perhaps it takes a child to see it as I did then, when I saw Johann Cruyff and gaped in awe.